Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Can I Say Something? Today we have a continuation of an interview I did a few weeks ago. He is Cinematech on TikTok, YouTube, and Cinematech underscore chat on Twitter. Welcome back to the show, TJ. Hello, Damien. How are you doing? <laughs> doing pretty well, man. Pretty good. So last time we talked, you uh, graduated college and you are in Toronto and you're looking to work in the film industry. Uh, how did that go? Uh, it actually went rather smoothly, which is very much not the case for a lot of people when they try to get into the film industry. I remember getting into the city, I think it was September of 2009, and within a month I had my first paid gig working on a feature-length film, which is like very rare, a very rare thing to happen, and it was mostly all by luck. Um, but the kind of thing that I wanted to touch on with this, since it was my like first film job, I was right out of school, I didn't really know anything from anything, is that it's very easy to be exploited as a worker when you are coming into the film industry and you don't really know anything. Uh, as an example, on this first film, uh, I think I was making something like $500 a week. And the way that I felt about it was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I'm actually getting paid. Uh, but then when that feature film uh, wrapped and everything was all said and done, I think I was working on average like 16 to 18 hours a day. I think there was one or two weeks where I pulled over 100 hours in a single week. And when you do the math, it's kind of like, oh, I was working for like $4 an hour when the minimum wage was around 12 at the time. So, you know, it's it's still it probably still is. I haven't worked in the industry for a while, but for any of your listeners who are just getting into the film industry now, like be very careful with who you work for, because they will you know, take your take your time and not pay you enough for it and just say that, you know, it's going to be good for your career to 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 give up your labor at such a cheap cost. So be wary, dear listeners. <laughs> yeah, it's the whole thing of like, yeah, you can work for exposure. This will be good for your resume. This will be good for the next thing. You know, yeah. just take and, t take what we're going to give you and just yeah, accept that. Yeah, yeah. And in my case, it actually ended up being true, although I will still always warn people against this kind of stuff. Um, after that first feature film, which was, you know, aside from the extraordinarily long hours, uh, was somewhat it was somewhat of a good experience. And then I did get my next gig right after because of that job. Um, and then the kind of trajectory of my career started uh, as a I started, excuse me, uh, I started as a production coordinator uh, on these two feature films. Uh, the first of which actually premiered at TIFF back in like 2010, I think. So that was also another like wild thing that kind of rarely happens. Um, and then after that, moved into more post-production, working as an assistant editor on like a number of TV shows. Um, but then once again, the sort of grip and the not so nice parts of the industry like sunk their teeth in where working 12, 14 hour days sometimes six days a week on television shows that, you know, you don't really get a lot out of it and the pay is not very good. So you're making a lot of trade-offs between your personal life and uh, what you want to do. And at the end of that, after the probably a couple of years of that, I just said, uh, I'm done with this. I'm not going to be working in the film industry more. I'm not going to work in the film industry anymore because I'm just burnt out at this point and I want to actually uh, have a life. Um, and so it's just another thing that for the people who are thinking about getting into the film industry, you really need to be ready for those, you know, minimum 12 hour days, probably a lot longer, kind of regardless of whichever part of the industry you're in, whether it's post-production, working on set, it's just really, 
it's a it's a hard hard life to lead but it can be fulfilling for the right type of person yeah, this one's going to ask you, do you think it was worth it? Do you think all that time you spent um, sort of giving over your life and your weeks and your hours and your days to those projects, was it worth it, worth it for you? At this point, looking back, and this was all, this all happened like, you know, at least 10 years ago at this point, um, I can look back on it and see the value of the experiences. I can relate it to what I'm currently doing. So when I'm doing a live stream or when I'm writing a review for a film or when I'm making you know, just a random TikTok talking about like how a film was made. I can draw on that experience, having firsthand knowledge of how films are made, about how TV shows are edited, which is not all that different from how films are edited. And so it does give me a good foundation to speak from, a, a well-rounded foundation since I, you know, put the work in on set, but I've also done the academic stuff. And uh, yeah, I think that put me in a good place to do what I want to do now, which is basically sitting in front of my computer and talking about movies all the live long day. <laughs> right. Um, so let me try to try to connect the uh, college stuff to the, to the work stuff. There's that question that people always ask, you know, is it worth it to go to film school to, to make films? What do you think um, for you, was it worth it to, to go through the entire process of going to the film school to, to make, to make movies? Yes. I think one of the good things about film school is that it allows you to fail at making a film without any consequences. And this is one thing that I don't think a lot of people kind of realize is that if you've never really made a film before, you've just watched films and you've like watched tutorials online about how these films are made, when you actually get to the process of making your own film, you probably aren't going to know what to do and how it's actually done. And all of those lessons that you learned on, you know, are learning from YouTube tutorials are gonna go right out of your head. So instead of, you know, kind of, scraping together all of your money, buying a camera, and then thinking that you need to succeed and not succeeding in the way that you want to, the film school allows you that opportunity to sort of fail gracefully and to have proper learning experiences from those failures. And I will tell anyone that like the first films you make in film school, they're going to be bad. You're going to look back at them and be embarrassed by them. Like almost no one makes a good short film their first time out in film school. But what you will have access to are resources um, such as cameras, proper lighting equipment, teachers who can tell you the right and wrong ways of how things work, and also how sets are run generally, so that when you do eventually make that transition to the film industry uh, proper, you aren't like totally bewildered by how things are, are run and what's going on. Um, but I will also say there is a counterpoint to this where there are other ways to fail in the film industry with very low stakes. Um, there used to be websites, I don't know if they exist anymore, uh, like Mandy.com being one of them, where you can just go on there and pick up a film gig. And it could be an unpaid PA job. You do it like, you know, two days on the weekend and you're still on set getting that experience. And in some cases, it's more valuable experience because you are around people who do have something on the line, even though you personally really don't. So you are able to interact with people who are working in the industry and learn from them. And then like the third way of going about it is like, hey, if you're going to spend $20,000 on film school, why not just buy every single film in the Criterion Collection, watch all of them, and then take your cell phone and go make the best movie that you can and see what you can do with it and then try to learn from those failures as well. Um, so I, th I think there is, but like overall, I think there is value in the academic side of learning about films, there is value in going to a film school. Um, but 
ultimately you're only going to get out of it what you put into it. And if you are not really dedicated to making the best kind of films that you can, whether it is in film school or outside of it, uh, the films are not going to turn out good. No one can really turn you into a good filmmaker. They can only really give you the tools to succeed and then make sure that you have a good foundation in order to succeed. Yeah. Wow. Really well said. Yeah. Is there, um, do you find that, uh, on, on the films that you, that you worked on, was there a sort of like, you know, the, the, the myth people always talk about, or the stories people always talk about being set on sets with, you know, tyrannical directors, very chaotic, a lot of yelling, a lot of stuff like that. Is there, is that like the norm? Is that the not, you've never seen that? Or is there like, you know, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. So I've certainly been on a chaotic set. Uh, I don't know to what degree I should uh, talk about it in detail, but this, I mean, this was like, you know, 15 years ago at this point, so it was probably fine. Um, I've, I've found in my experience with the two features that I've worked on and on the few TV shows that I've worked on um, that the directors are mostly uh, good, but occasionally uh, chaos can arise if, let's say, you're working with budgets or excuse me, you're working on projects whose budget does not match the ambition of what the director wants to do. And that can lead uh, that can lead to friction. Uh, I have been on a film set before where the we were trying to get a particular kind of shot. I think it might have been a driving shot or something like that. And the <clears throat> and the first AD was not happy. Excuse me. The first assistant director was not happy with uh, the safety precautions that were being put in place for the people driving the cars. We were doing this in, I think, November, uh, so it's kind of snowy out. The roads aren't in the greatest condition. And he uh, left the set, and he said, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't want to be responsible for this. And then, you know, after the director kind of went after him and talked to him, the AD came back, and they made an agreement to have better communication to prioritize safety to a degree that they, I guess they hadn't yet before and they were able to continue on amicably. So in that situation, I feel like if the film had the budget that matched the ambition, all of that stuff would have been taken care of. You would have had those additional personnel on set who would have been able to more closely look at the safety of driving in the winter and making sure that the right tires are on the right cars and all of this kind of stuff. So those, in my experience, those are really the points of friction that can arise. If you were just to recommend somebody not never been in the industry before, like myself, um, sort of wants to break into you know entertainment, would you recommend? Where would you recommend starting? Because there's so many different starting starting points you can sort of go into right now, right? So would you recommend just having a camera, just shooting a thing, doing TikToks? Would you recommend, like you said, going to a website and just um, volunteering to be a grip person or a personal assistant, some, something like that? If you want to just sort of get your feet wet for the first time as somebody that's maybe a little bit older, like myself, <laughs> where, where would you recommend starting out? I think the first question to ask is like, where do you eventually want to end up? Like, what is the end goal? Because then I think the starting point kind of reveals itself. Like if you just want to work on film sets and you don't really care what job you get, like try to track down a location manager or something like that and say, hey, I will be your location PA and you can boss me around and tell me what to do and I'll work for 16 hours a day and I'll pick up the garbage and I'll have a smile on my face the whole time. And they'll probably be like, all right, cool, we'll give you a shot. You know, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of unenviable, unenviable, uh, excuse me, unenviable jobs on a film set. Right. So there is likely going to be openings there. If instead you want to be a director, then start 
directing movies like find your friends find the people in your life who are also interested in filmmaking uh if it was 15 years ago i would say put a list put put an ad up on craigslist saying hey who, who wants to make a movie with me but i don't think that site exists anymore um but like find places on the internet where people who want to make movie who want to make movies congregate and just say hey i have a script i have an idea does anyone want to just shoot this short film with me over the weekend and we'll have some fun and i'll buy pizza for you so this and there's also other ways to approach it depending on the job like if you're a cinematographer then you should you should probably get in touch with a local rental house or something like that something like if you're in toronto uh, william f whites or deluxe and see if they will let you in uh say you're a student because they love doing deals for students and uh just try to get in there and play with some of the cameras and see if there's some cameras that they'll let you fool around with. Try on some lenses, like try to uh, practice, you know, your your focus pulling and things like this. Um, generally, I've found that the film industry is a warm place for newcomers if you just sort of go to the right place and have reasonable expectations about what you want to do and where you eventually want to get to. You'll find people who are willing to help you. Um, so yeah, once you know your end goal, it's a lot easier to sort of pinpoint where you can go in. Also just working in the office, like being an office PA, you're basically, you're basically a secretary and they just need people who can write emails and take phone calls. And that can be a good way in because then, you know, a couple of years down the road, you're a production manager, you are a production coordinator, you're doing something and you're probably in a fair, you probably have a fair bit of power as to how the production is running and you get to see all of the internal aspects of it, how much things cost, the budgets, the production reports, all that stuff. So like there's a lot of good ways in. It's just going to be from the absolute bottom unless you want to be a director, then just start directing movies. And that's going to be the best thing. Nice, nice. That's all very, very helpful. Um, and then sort of pivoting to what you're doing now, what you sort of moved into, the role you're in now is sort of like, what would you call it? Like a culture critic, movie critic, um, getting into sort of the press side of it, you know, getting press passes for certain festivals like that. Where would somebody start if they have no sort of experience in that arena? Yeah, I mean, that's really a, a place where practice is going to make perfect. I also struggle to even consider myself a critic. I tend to think of myself more as just a content creator. And part of that content involves reviewing films. Uh, when I, you know, I, I would never want to start comparing myself to someone like A.O. Scott at The New York Times or something like that. Like he's he's a film critic. I'm I'm some guy with a TikTok account who has opinions about movies. Um, but in terms of getting into sort of what I'm doing right now and uh, and as you said, like, being considered press insofar as film festival film festivals are concerned, a very easy way of going about that is starting your letterboxed account, uh, making sure that you are reviewing in depth every single movie that you see, and just get into the practice of writing a couple of paragraphs about the films that you watch and sort of develop your writing voice, as it were. Once you get to a point where you feel like you are you know, writing thoughtful, good material about films, I would recommend going to Twitter and trying to find film uh, and culture outlets or that outlets that deal with that. And I'm not talking about things like Slate. I'm talking about ones that are like much, much, much smaller than that. Maybe, you know, like the kind of places that have like a thousand to 10,000 followers and try to figure out who the editor is and then just send them an email and pitch them, pitch them an idea for an article or for a review that you want to do. And in a lot of cases, they will probably respond to you and at least give you a little bit of feedback on your pitch. 
and let you know if they want to go ahead with your idea. And some of these gigs even pay like, you know, 20 bucks a pop or something like that. It's not going to be a lot because they're all running off ad sales, but it will be something. And then once you start doing that, it's at that point that you can then say to festivals, hey, look, I'm actually putting out press coverage on this on this service. So please let me come to your festival as press and I will do coverage for films at this festival. And they more than likely will say yes. Like I recently was accepted for press accreditation to uh, Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal. I sadly won't be able to attend in person, but I'm doing uh, some uh, some reviews from uh, remote screeners. And all I really have to show or to let them know that I am press is a TikTok account that has maybe 40 to 50 video reviews uh, on it for different films. And over the course of making those reviews, I've been able to refine how I get across my points, how I interact with the audience, how I try to engage them. And a film festival will look at that and say, oh, this is actually a valuable person to have around because they're speaking directly to a film-based audience and they're able to demonstrate a kind of knowledge of being able to interact with those audiences. So you really just need to start off with your figuring out how you're going to write about movies, but then also just doing it as often as you possibly can, and then try to transition into either uh, writing reviews for, for print or do what I do, which is video reviews, which I personally think is a lot easier, but I think that's just because I've been involved with video making for so long. Hmm. Interesting. Very well said. I, um, something I always wanted to ask, like people that work in, you know, culture criticism and people that write for, write for a living. Do you ever feel like, um, kind of weird or awkward about writing a review for a movie you've seen? Um, and it's not going to be very flattering. It's not gonna be very good. Do you feel like, you know, you've, you've been given this opportunity to, to, to write for a living to, to go out and see movies for a living. Do you ever feel like, Oh, I'm, <laughs> they're being very nice to me to give me this, this opportunity. And I don't want to really cut their, cut their movie off at the knees as much as I would otherwise, if I was just sort of, sort of John Smith, just writing a blog for myself. Yeah, I think there's varying degrees to that. Um, I tend to find that when it comes to Hollywood blockbusters, I have very little, I give them very little leeway and very little slack on stuff like that. Like if they make a movie that costs $150 million and it's not good, I will eviscerate it. I will tear it to shreds. Like I have no qualms about that whatsoever. It gets a bit more complicated when you start talking about independent film, especially when you can tell that it's like a micro budget film, something that's made for under, say, like $50,000. And you want to give them credit for trying, for having the, the audacity and the gumption to get up in the morning and say, I'm going to make a film on a shoestring budget and then I'm going to put it out there in the world, into the world and just see who responds to it. Like, I will always respect that filmmaker much, much more than a filmmaker who is given a budget of like $150 million, as I said, and has to go, you know, make something that'll grow $600 million in order for it to be profitable for a giant multinational corporation. So in the case of those smaller independent films, I do give them a bit more slack and a bit more leeway. I wish I could actually tell you the name of the film, but I just saw yesterday, one of the films is going to be premiering at Fantasia, I believe tonight even, it might be playing right now, uh, or maybe playing tomorrow morning, I can't remember which one. And it's a great example of this where they are doing very cool and interesting things that I like with their camera work. The last third of the film is very tense. It's very moody. 
Uh, it's certainly a subject that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see in a film, but I enjoyed seeing it and how it was presented. There are a few moments in the film where it seemed like the cinematographer didn't really know what to do with a wide shot. And some of the acting, especially early on in the film, is not great. But as the film goes on, it really starts to pick up. And I think they actually do nail the nail the ending of the film. So, you know, if if that product, if that film was put out by by Disney or Paramount and it was a $100 million film starring Robert Pattinson, I would have no uh, issue with maybe focusing in or drilling in on the weaker parts of the film in order to illustrate like these are the things that need to be addressed by a production of this stature or of this uh, or or with this budget. Whereas because this is an independent film, I'm much like I, I'm very sure that I'm going to give it like quite a positive review um, because I can see the effort that was put into it and I can see what the filmmaker was trying to do. There was just a couple of missteps here and there that likely had to do with not being able to do a few more takes, not having enough time to be on set. Um, so yeah, I do, I do have a little bit of a leeway for those independent films. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. There was a movie I saw, um, early this year. It's a very interesting movie because, um, it's called dash cam and there's two movies called dash mm. cam from this year. And I watched the wrong one. And apparently a lot of other people have watched the wrong one too. And I, I, like I said, just, just tore it apart. I was like, you know, this is a good movie except for the cinematography, the writing, the acting, everything out, the lighting, everything was, was terrible. But other than all those things, it was pretty good. So I just <laughs> did a very clickbaity review for it, for that movie. So yeah, if I was definitely working for an outlet that's the other thing about you now in in the year of our lord 2022 with all the social medias and everything everything like that do you also feel like you know you have a reputation to uphold where you know otherwise maybe 10 15 years ago if you weren't such a well-known uh critic you you could post something online and be not not you know racist or homophobic anything like that but just like kind of weird kind of just taking apart some director or just or just whatever, you know, do you feel like um, now, now that you're sort of a known quantity, do you think more about the stuff you're putting out into the world in terms of social media posts? So the thing that I think about the most in regards to this is not so much about like, how can I build a specific brand or how am I going to appear and what should I do in order to appear a certain way to the audience? Because that eventually will become exhausting. And it's kind of like when you start telling a lie and you have to remember that lie and then eventually you get caught later down the road because you forgot the lie and it's just a whole big problem. So for me, when it comes to how I present myself, I just try to be as utterly honest as I possibly can be. So going back to like the last answer where I'm talking about, you know, thinking about films in different ways, depending on the budget, the studio, at what point the filmmaker is at their career, like all these things. I tend to include all of that in my reviews. Like I just did a review for Thor Love and Thunder. And I think I started the review on the, on the TikTok by saying that like, I have a real problem uh, rating these MCU films fairly. And a lot of that has to do with the amount of money going into them, the amount of cultural currency they tend to generate. And I just don't feel the need to try to defend them or or like them for uh, despite their faults. And I think the audience appreciates that and recognizes that. So in terms of what I put out there into the world, uh, my social media presence and how I'm perceived, I just want people to know that I am being honest with them when I tell them what I think about a movie. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I, for me, I'm just, you know, I've been an MCU fan for a long time and um, really not jiving with what they're doing right now. And I think that's, you know, to your point of being consistent with who you are and your viewpoint, um, you know, that's definitely something I think about as well when talking about this stuff, because I feel like somebody like me for the MCU projects that are coming out now, I think probably hold more weight than somebody that doesn't like them. I mean, you know, it's just such a, there's just, there's such, uh, (laughs) the, the, the track that they're going on now I feel like wasn't laid out uh, earlier I feel like the you know the pacing on a lot of this stuff is a huge huge problem for me so yeah I'm right there with you in terms of the MCU stuff I'm really interested to see moving forward if the MCU heads <laughs> the fans such as I are going to continue to um, you know see these movies in mass like we have like we've done before yeah I think just talking about the MCU briefly I think it's very clear that for phase one two and three they had their endpoint picked out, which was Endgame. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if we found out one day that Kevin Feige, you know, three to four films into the MCU had already decided, like, all right, this is how the whole thing is going to be laid out, and this is the endpoint that we're going to go to, and this is how we're going to sprinkle in and keep, like, Thanos in the background growing as, like, a looming threat. We'll put him in a couple of post-credit sequences here. We'll mention him in a Guardians of the Galaxy there, and then eventually we're going to get to it. Whereas now that we're in phase four it feels like we're just in a holding pattern and Marvel is almost waiting for something to happen. It doesn't feel like we're actually building towards something, nothing concrete anyways. We're just sort of introducing characters that are super powerful and then not doing anything with them. So I just feel like, yeah, they're in a holding pattern and they're just waiting to see like what they should be striving for. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, just pivot back to, you know, how you write about movies and how you feel about uh, directors and writers. You know, there's a person who um, has a movie coming out very soon. I won't say who they are, but it's it's a person who's, you know, known for being very, like I said, uh, explosive on set. Um, he had a fight with a very famous uh, actor a long time ago, and um, more and more stories are coming up out about this person. So I'll ask you another big question. Um, can you separate the art from the artist? If you go to a movie and it's somebody that's famous for being a terrible person in real life, can you sort of put that aside to write a, uh, a somewhat objective review for the movie? So I, I've been thinking about this uh, a lot. And I've been, it's something that, I think, that I've been thinking about for years and years. Um, I think this whole thing started to solidify for me when a few years ago at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, Alain Delon, the uh, the famous French actor, was given a Lifetime Achievement Award. And there was a big uproar about it because, for one, it's a Lifetime Achievement Award from the most prestigious film festival in the world going to an actor who uh, is a known homophobe and I believe also uh, uh, abused women throughout his life. And so the kind of question comes up like, surely, surely there must have been another actor that you could have given the award to and not this guy. Um, And then not so long after that, uh, it might have been the next year at the Venice Film Festival, and this would have been the year that Joker won the Golden Lion at uh, at Venice. Uh, There was a Roman Polanski film in the festival. And Roman Polanski, of course, has a uh, well, he's done he's done horrendous stuff like the man should have gone to jail years and years and years ago um and you know we we often hear from different film festivals especially when calls are being made to include uh more women filmmakers to include uh more filmmakers who are just not old white men and we keep hearing that well you know we're just giving the spots to the people who deserve it the most and then they 
let a Roman Polanski film in and it's like, well, you know, in Venice, maybe go fuck yourself. Um, so when it comes to my side of it, when it comes to separating the art from the artist, I think that you can separate the art from the artist if the art is not intrinsically wrapped up in who the artist is. So the best example I've ever heard about this and kind of I think I was listening to someone talk about this and it helped solidify it in my mind was when uh, Meatloaf, the singer, recently passed away. And it turned out that, and I didn't know this because I wasn't following his career, that he was uh, an anti-vaxxer, he was anti-mask, he was you know, skeptical of COVID and all this kind of stuff. And so the question came up, like, can you separate the art from the artist? And this person I was listening to said, in this specific case, yes, you can, because Meatloaf himself didn't write his own music. He was not that different from a guitarist showing up and playing uh, music that was already composed for that guitarist. Meatloaf would show up generally, especially in his, in his songs that are most well known, he would just show up with music written for them. He would sing them. As difficult as a lot of those songs were, he would, he would sing them. And that was it. So the art that he was involved in making with wasn't really of his own design and creation. Um, and so in that case, yes, you can, I think, actually separate the art from the artist. Um, however, where I do not draw that distinction is in cases with the director who I, I'm pretty sure I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, I have no real intention in this point of reviewing that film on my channel, even though I know that it's going to be probably one of the oscar darlings of the year and i think when the trailer for it came out i looked at the film and i was like oh this is this is the best film of the year probably or this is like the new front runner for best film of the year without even coming out just based on the cast and the you know outside of all of the allegations against him and i'm sure that he's an awful 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 person um there is a pedigree there as well, considering how well this particular director has done at the Oscars uh, previously. So I, as a reviewer, do have the choice of just not reviewing the film. And that is what I'm going to do in this specific case. Um, I've also kind of just removed certain people from my, I guess, list of people who I would even consider reviewing films that they're a part of. Like Mel Gibson is a good example of this. I really enjoyed Mel Gibson when I was a kid, but then he did a lot of anti-Semitic stuff, and I'm not satisfied that he didn't mean it or that he apologized for it properly. So I just routinely will not watch anything that Mel Gibson is in. I have no need or want to give that man money. Uh, and if you'll allow me just one <laughs> additional example. <laughs> sure, yes. Um, because in my mind, it does also come down to support and where the money goes. So in the case of, you know, say, let's say the famous German director, uh, Rainier Werner Fassbender, that is another man who is well known to have been toxic and abusive on set. But he also made a series of classic films of uh, the new German cinema that are essential for understanding that time period and what was going on in Germany at the time uh, in relationship to uh, in relationship to art, in relationship to film, in relationship to a lot of stuff. Like, the man was prolific. Uh, but he's dead. So if I watch his movies, he's not getting money from it. So in that case, I'm okay with it. So it does come down to, in some cases for me, like, 
who's getting paid if I watch this movie or who's potentially getting paid if I give it a positive review. If the person's dead, then eh, it's probably okay to talk about. But in the case of Mel Gibson or like a Harvey Weinstein or something like that, I just don't want them to make money from me anymore. And so I don't support those specific uh, films and filmmakers as best as I can. Yeah, very, very well said. Yes, <laughs> it's very hard to, to sort of do that, right? Um, yeah. So just moving on to a little bit of other um, topics, um, thinking about, but keeping within the sort of how you view films as a critic, do you, like, when you watch a movie and you're looking at, oh, let's look at the cinematography and the writing and the acting and all this kind of stuff, is that something where um, the, the emotional impact that the movie might have had otherwise if you were just watching it for enjoyment, um, do you sort of have a moment where, oh, this moment was supposed, it was designed to make me cry or it was a designed to elicit an emotional response for me uh, normally, but because I'm here sort of, um, I have my critic eyes on, I have my critic glasses on, um, that emotional wallop was, was blunted where otherwise would have, would have hit me harder. Yeah, this was uh, something that actually came up when I was in uh, when I was in film school for like those four years, the, the academic side of film school, because you are thinking critically about films so often that you start to uh, strip away uh, all of the kind of emotions of a film and look at the mechanics of how it's made. So like actually noticing when certain types of music play, when close ups are used, things like this, you know that they're all meant to elicit specific emotional responses from you, whether it be crying or laughing or scaring you to death. And often when I was talking to my classmates during that period, especially when we got near the end, is that we found that like a lot of films didn't really affect us anymore because we were only really seeing uh, the mechanics of the uh, of the film and what the director was probably trying to do and how the director was probably trying to lead us. However, after being out of that environment for a few years that started to go away and i was able to just forget about the mechanics of a film while also i think subconsciously being able to know like oh that was actually a very difficult shot and they did that really well so it you know that that um being able to analyze the film in a critical way and being able to enjoy it became a lot easier because I think I did become a, at least a little bit less critical after a few years. Nice. Very cool. Um, and then sticking with like, you know, how, how you watch movies as a critic, um, you know, I've, I've been definitely getting more into when movies are coming out, sort of a um, festival, seeing fe movies at festivals. I want to start doing that because there's a movie specifically, uh, Resurrection, with uh, Rebecca Hall. I really wanted to see it. Was a huge, you know, uh, Sundance darling, right? And but that was six months ago now, and I feel like <laughs> these movies. Like we, I think we were talking yesterday on the stream about how movies are distributed. Um, I think there was one movie that's not that hasn't come to Canada yet. Um, do you feel like? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the distribution model is very weird because the movie comes out in January for the festival. I'm like, oh, I want to see that. It looks amazing. And so I, for me, I'm wondering if this is for, for you as well. The movie has such a long runway for it to be actually actually released. And I feel like the buildup and the hype for the movie gets overblown to such an extent where when I finally sit down and see the movie, it has to hit a bar that it normally wouldn't have already hit if I had known, if I had known nothing about the movie previously. Do you, do you feel that as well? Yeah, I mean, that certainly happens. Uh, you can have a film be hyped up 
to you forever and ever and ever. And then when you do finally see it, it can let you down. Or as you say, it does need to, to get over a, a certain bar. Um, to your point, though, about uh, Resurrection, that is actually one of the films playing at Fantasia Fest. And I did nice. request a screener from that and I was denied. So I'm not oh, going to be no. able to see it. But <laughs> I think that also plays into uh, what the or what maybe the driving issue is behind the distribution behind some of these films i think whoever the distributor is of resurrection has recognized especially after how the film did at sundance i believe as you said uh that the best way for that film to continue to earn money and earn momentum is to play out on the festival circuit and in a lot of cases the larger festivals like the cons and the tiffs and the tellurides and the new york film festivals they want a certain kind of exclusivity. So one thing I've noticed about the Toronto International Film Festival, for example, is that they will almost never look at a film unless it is a North American premiere. They will very rarely, in some cases, take something that is a Canadian premiere, but there has to be like a very special circumstance. I believe when Parasite showed at the Toronto International Film Festival, that was a Canadian premiere. And that's largely because TIFF knew that they had to program it. Otherwise, they were going to get, you know, it was going to get taken by someone else. Um, and, and they wanted, and like they have a certain prestige that they need to put out there. So like they can't have the film that won the Palme d'Or play at another film festival in Canada. Like that just will not do. Um, and so in the case of resurrection, I imagine that one of the reasons why we haven't been able to see it yet on VOD or in theaters is that the distributor has decided, all right, we're going to go around the world to all these festivals, you know, a high profile horror thriller film like that is going to have a number of different festivals that are going to want it. Fantasia in uh, Montreal, obviously Sundance, as you said, I wouldn't be surprised if it was going to a couple of different festivals in Europe, like Stig's, which is, I hope I'm saying that one, right? Which is like one of the bigger horror festivals in Europe. And it's much more difficult to convince festivals to allow films in if they're available widely, right? So that's just kind of how the game is played. And for whatever reason, the distributor of that film has decided that this is the best way for this film to earn the money back that they paid for it to acquire it. I don't always agree with it. I'm a big proponent of just, you know, having the thing be available. Because otherwise you get into these ridiculous circumstances where depending where you are in the world, you might not get a proper legal release of a film until 12, maybe 18 months after the fact, or in some cases, never at all. So I just, I just want all of the movies ever made to be available at all times. That would be the dream. <laughs> Yes, exactly. There's always this talk around um, award season time about movies that sort of, you know, they might debut in December. I, me I remember, um, what was it? Uh, what was Inherent, Inherent, Inherent Vice's director's next movie? Um, oh, oh the, uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson film that came out like last year? Yeah. Uh, Licorice Pizza? Yeah, it came out like it, it debuted, quote unquote, debuted in, in late December. I think it didn't come around here until like late January. So, yeah, very long runways for a lot of these movies. And you and the problem mm. me and my friends have a lot of times is so many critics and so many podcasts we listen to will review the movie. in like I said, November of last year, and then the movie won't even debut until March or February of the following year. I'm just like, I want to see this movie. It looks yeah. looks great, but 
Yeah. Um, and then one famous one from this year that I think is still on its tour around the world um, is the movie Moria, which debuted in Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival, in July of last year. And here yeah. we are a year later, and it's still like the director is like, no, my my film is so important that it must only be seen in theaters. It's, it's incredible, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Memoria is a very special example. It kind of actually harkens back to how films were distributed distributed in like the 30s. Um, right. If, if you were to look back at, say, like the uh, distribution history of Gone with the Wind, it would be in some ways very similar to Memoria. But I, I remember seeing Memoria at, uh, at TIFF last year. So I was able to get in before a lot of other people. I think that was the North American debut, actually. And yeah, the specific distribution model that they went with is kind of incredible. And for those of you listening who are unaware, uh, Neon, I believe, is the uh, company distributing it in North America. And they've decided to go on with this kind of roadshow model where the film will play in like one theater in one city for one week. And then it will just move around the country. It will never be in like multiple cities at the same time. At least that's what they were doing from the outset. And like, you know, from a from a press standpoint, from a publicity stunt kind of standpoint, it's not the worst idea. But also, yes, it is extraordinarily frustrating for people who want to see it or for people like, let's say it you know, only comes to one theater in whatever state that you happen to live in. If you live in America, there's every any possibility or every possibility that the theater that it plays at could be hundreds of miles from you. And so being able to actually see it will be for those privileged few who just happen to live close to the theater, which is probably not how it should be. But once again, it's not my movie to distribute, although I agree it is frustrating. Yeah, extremely, extremely frustrating to do it like that. And again, it's like the, you know, it's the, that model, like you said, definitely does entice people to go to other, <laughs> maybe not so legal means of seeing yeah. things. And um, I think I was mentioning yesterday on your stream of just like, yeah, I have a, v- a VPN and I can see other, it's like, you know, why would you keep a movie over here in the UK and over here in Brazil and uh, another movie here in Japan? Just, you know, it's, we have the internet, <laughs> we have ways around this thing. You're just making it harder, or harder on the, uh, person on the person watching the movies to see the movies it's ridiculous yeah yeah Yeah. i i I agree i think you know have the movie be available to as many people as possible or you will get people pirating it right like i've always been a strong proponent of the idea that if your movie is available then people will you know jump through a minimum amount of hoops in order to watch it right it was the great thing about netflix when netflix first started uh or when it first came to canada at least i'm sure it was actually better in the united states that there was a lot of stuff on netflix and there wasn't any other competition just like a lot of movies were there and we didn't have to worry about this fracturing of like where like which film is on which streaming service so like the frustrations that you're talking about between like whether a film is available in like brazil or france or australia you know we're now getting into the situation where that's true of any number of streaming services in one country where you in order to have access to the most films possible you're talking about shelling out like 80 maybe 100 dollars a month to get your netflixes and your you know criterion channels and your movies and your paramount pluses and all the rest of it um, so it's like just a continuation, uh, of, of that frustration. And I think going back to Netflix, like early on, I think a lot of people looked at Netflix and are like, oh, great. My pirating days are over because now things are just easily available. And it only costs me like 10 bucks a month. 
And now that we're in this situation again, where we're basically just getting cable, but it's the internet, and we have to buy and buy into a whole plethora of streaming services, that piracy will likely come back stronger now because people are just fed up with this uh, fracturing of the market. So, you know, it's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a byproduct of walled gardens of people being far too precious with their IP and trying to milk consumers for as much as they possibly can, which is, you know, ultimately bad for the consumer. Yes, exactly, exactly. So um, as we start to wrap up here, um, you said you're going to uh, Fantasia Fest or you're going online to see the movies at Fantasia Fest. Anything you are looking forward to seeing, anything you should let people know that are listening, um, the stuff that you're most looking forward to seeing there? So the films that I was most looking forward to seeing, I largely will not be able to have access to, unfortunately, at least not at the time of the festival. So I'm using Fantasia as a wonderful excuse to see a bunch of films from filmmakers that I have not seen anything from before and have no expectations of. As I've said, I've already seen one film that I cannot name because the embargo is not up yet. Um, and I was uh, I was eventually quite enamored with the film. Like I have very positive views towards it. Um, but then beyond that, there are a few anime films that are playing at the festival this year that I'm looking forward to. There appears to be a kind of stop motion or not even stop motion, but like an animated film that uses traditional Chinese puppetry that is supposed to be showing like epic battles and things like this. So I'm just extraordinarily curious as to how that's going to work. Um, and yeah, just a number of other films. I'm, I'm really just most excited for being able to see as many films as I can from a diverse range of, of filmmakers from all over the world. And I guess I could actually name drop a couple of them. Um, I have been told there's a film in the festival called Fast and Feel Love, which I know I'm going to be able to watch. That is supposed to be super great. Um, there's also, oh, the, uh, the film that I was referring to that has the, uh, that uses the, uh, the puppetry is called Demigod, The Legend Begins. So super excited about that. Um, Oh God, what are the other ones? I'm just looking at my list now. Yeah, there's a oh man, there's a documentary called Lynch Oz, which talks about like David Lynch's relationship to the Wizard of Oz, which unfortunately I won't be able to watch, but like it just sounds so cool. Uh, I wish I wish I could actually see that one. Um, the Killer, oddly enough, is one that is showing at uh, Fantasia, and I did try to get a screener for that, but was denied. But then it was just released in Canada yesterday, anyways. So oh, wow. <laughs> I can I, I I can just write a review for it if I want to put it up and not be subject to Fantasia's embargo. I think I think that's how that works. Right. <laughs> um, so that's cool. And then also I try to see when possible at a festival, like as many films from South America as I can, because I find that that part of the world is often the least represented in these kind of international festivals, at least in Canada. So there are a couple of films from South America playing in the festival, like uh, uh, Hiresa. I hope I'm saying that right. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. And I think there's one more, but I can't remember exactly which one that it is. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, just... Yeah. You know, generally just looking forward to seeing as many films as I possibly can. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so, yeah, with that, um, so you are on TikTok. You're still doing the TikTok thing. Um, that's going very well, correct? Yeah, it's going mostly well. I will add a caveat to that, that I think TikTok is as I think I think the TikTok algorithm has changed in some way in the last few days because I've noticed a, a sharp decline in uh, in views. So. It's all part of the game of TikTok, uh, always trying to adapt to 
always trying to adapt, always trying to figure out what the algorithm actually wants and when it wants it. So that'll be a project over the next couple of days. So hopefully I'll be able to figure that out. Uh, but aside from that, yeah, it's going pretty well. Nice, nice. And you're so on YouTube uh, at Cinematech. Um, you also have a Twitter account over there. So um, yeah, highly recommend everybody go check out uh, TJ on Cinematech. That's C-I-N-E-M-A-T-E-Q on TikTok and YouTube, correct? That is correct. And uh, just as an added note, if you want to uh, come watch me stream live, I stream live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on YouTube. So come, come hang out and talk to me in the chat. All right. Very cool, man. I really appreciate you coming on. You're some of the smartest uh, voices in film criticism today. So I really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. And uh, I'll come on anytime you want. Just let me know. Awesome. Thank you so much. So for Can I Say Something, I've been Damien and we'll see you next week. Bye bye.